Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. We are broadcasting from the Ventura River watershed in Southern California on traditional and unceded Chumash territory. Learn more at bcm-net.org. It's Chad Myers here, beaming in from the Ventura River watershed in Southern California, half a planet away. Delighted to be part of Nomad Podcast. to talk a little bit about rivers from both an ecological and theological perspective. My wife and I and our small community live and work in the Ventura River watershed, nestled at the northern end of the Southern California coastal bioregion. Our home, an ecological sustainability project, stands a scarce 50 meters away, perched above the Ventura River midway down its short 16-mile course in a little blue-collar, unincorporated town of about 4,000 people. We moved here from East Los Angeles, the great world metropolis, some 15 years ago. So a little bit about my ecological context. The basin of the Ventura River covers only 230 square miles with more than a 6,000-foot elevation fall from mountains to oceans, so our watershed is relatively small. The Ventura uh, is a seasonal braided river that meanders and regularly shifts its course. It has no recorded Chumash name. The Chumash are the indigenous people of this region. A local Chumash uh, colleague explained to us during a recent tour of the watershed, we didn't name rivers. We only have a generic term for river, Utam. I guess we knew by proximity or context which river was being discussed. After all, there are only two real rivers in these parts. So Ventura River City and County were named by Spanish settlers at Mission San Buenaventura, St. Bonaventure which was the ninth of 21 Franciscan missions that formed the backbone of Spanish colonization in Alta California between 1770 and 1820. The Ventura River's headwaters rise in the western transverse ranges, some of the youngest and most tectonically active mountains in North America. The river empties through an estuary into the Pacific Ocean just west of the city after which it is named. The watercourse corridor is a complex riparian and tableland mix of forested savanna and understory, chaparral and alluvial scrubland. It supports a diverse array of habitats from freshwater marshes to coastal sagelands. The river originally flowed perennially for much of its length, and we listen longingly to local old-timers who speak of when it was brimming with steelhead trout and bird life. Today, the river is typically dry two-thirds of the year, compromised by agricultural drawdown and suburban encroachment. It is congested by an obsolete dam at the foot of the mountains, plans for removal long ago stymied by bureaucracy and politics. It is channelized and bermed for flood control in stretches, including in front of our home, and it is diminished by diversion into the reservoir just over the hill from us. For all of this, however, 
The Ventura River is more intact than most seasonal streams in arid and overdeveloped Southern California. Our river has two very different faces. For most of the year, it flows only underground, the riverbed a mossy mat created by nitrogen-rich manure and fertilizer-laden runoff from orchards and ranches. Lake Casitas, built in the late 1950s, serves as the primary water source for our watershed, affording us a kind of water sovereignty, which is to say we are independent from imported water by the state grid. That's a big thing in California. However, this may change with continuing drought cycles and development. The few remaining steelhead trout, subjects of halting local, state, and federal restoration efforts, struggle to summer over in shaded pools, which we anxiously watch shrink and sometimes disappear in summer and fall. But if intense winter rains come from the west, courtesy of Pineapple Express atmospheric rivers, the Ventura River roars. For these brief, celebrated periods, the river exhibits a fierce power that can carry mature trees like toothpicks, transport huge boulders downstream, erode acres of riverbank, and sometimes lap the bottom of the little bridge below our home. We locals keep constant vigil throughout the rainy season to see if the river is flowing. Inured to drought, we compulsively track rainfall statistics. Come spring, the river's channelets have changed, and we must find new pools to vigil over, ever fretting about the habitat of box turtles, kingfishers, snowy egrets, and great blue herons. We mark the seasons by these different expressions of our river, whose moods often impact our own. Our Ventura landscape is haunted by indigenous memory and settler amnesia as well. Flowing underground with the river are stories of millennia of Shumash habitation in villages on or near its shifting banks, Matilha and Somas, back amidst oak savannas, Sulukukai and Kasom Somoy, along its foothill tributaries, Sitopotopo and Aohai, and at its mouth, Shishlop and Kameshme. The river remembers how, over the course of a mere 75 years after the founding of San Buenaventura Mission in 1782, indigenous Chumash communities were almost completely wiped out by successive waves of Spanish, Mexican, and American colonization. Today, the indigenous presence, like the river itself, has been reduced to a trickle by settler occupation. The river cuts through these layers of history, exposing, if we have eyes to see, a stratigraphy tortured by the tectonic pressures of empire. If there is magic on this planet, said the anthropologist Lorraine Isley, it is contained in water. To which Luna Leopold adds, the health of our waters is the principal measure of how we live on the land. Most of Southern California is a overbuilt environment that defies its bioregion. The city, the metropolis, the megalopolis is built on chaparral and desert and of course water is crucial to a desert culture. 
but the native water stocks here really would only support less than a million people. Today, the region has over 15 million people. One of the characteristics that our bioregion shares with ancient Palestine and modern Palestine is that of being an arid climate. And the overpopulation of both places have historically been dependent upon water theft. So here in Southern California from 1905 through 1913, William Mulholland directed the building of the Los Angeles Aqueduct, 223 miles, which required more than 2,000 workers and the digging of 164 tunnels. It was the largest engineering project in history at the time. After this aqueduct was completed in 1913, the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles um, began developing investors demanding so much water from the Owens Valley up in the High Sierras that the latter began to transform into a desert while the desert of Los Angeles flourished with houses and suburbs. Water is what we take for granted most, and yet it is emerging as perhaps the central issue for our planet on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Water injustice and disparity has become a global social issue as well. When one person drinks while another can only watch, says a Turkish proverb, doomsday will follow. I went down to the river to pray Studying the good old-fashioned way And shouting where the starry crown Oh Lord, show me the way I went down to the river to pray Studying the good old-fashioned way And shouting where the starry crown Oh Lord, show me the way Oh sisters, let's go down, come on down, come on down. Oh brothers, let's go down, down to the river to pray. I went down to the river to pray, studying the good old-fashioned way in shower where. Starry crown, oh Lord, show me the way. I went down to the river to pray, studying the good old fashioned way. And shall we wear the starry crown? Oh Lord, show me the way. Oh sisters, let's go down, come on down, come on down. Oh, brothers, let's go down, down to the river to pray. All of this is illuminated by ancient biblical accounts, particularly prophetic oracles that envision the end of empire, specifically in terms of 
the rewilding and restoration of creation. An example is Isaiah 13, verses 19 to 22, in which undomesticated animals re-inhabit the built environment of fallen imperial civilization. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them, says the prophet. It will never be inhabited or lived in for generations. Arabs will no longer pitch their tents there. Shepherds will not make flocks lie down there. Instead, wild animals will lie down, and its houses will be full of howling creatures. Ostriches will live there. Goat spirits will dance there. Hyenas will cry in those towers, jackals in those formerly pleasant palaces. Babylon's time is close at hand. Its days will not be prolonged. This is one of many instances in which the Hebrew Bible articulates divine liberation correlated to the demise of empire on one hand, but on the other with renewal of the earth, not destruction of it. The Hebrew prophets perceived that imperial exploitation was the cause of social and ecological problems that surrounded them, problems that are not unique to our time, but in fact have a deep history. Anyone who has visited the modern Middle East will find it hard to believe that once vast tracts of forests grew throughout this now relatively arid region. Yet at the start of the third millennium before the Common Era, the mountain slopes of the Levant were covered with massive cedar forests. Yet these great tracts had almost entirely disappeared long before the time of Jesus. Today the denuded highlands of Lebanon bear testimony to ancient environmental devastation. The prophets understood that the arid climate of their Palestinian homeland was therefore not a natural condition, but the result of historic processes of desertification due to the relentless economic exploitation of land, particularly of highland hardwood forests, by imperial powers. Desertification, of course, is the expansion of dry lands due to poor agricultural practices, such as overgrazing, degradation of soil fertility and structure. Improper soil moisture management, salinization and erosion, forest removal, and of course climate change. It is both an ancient and a current problem, especially in modern day Palestine and Southern California. In antiquity, the deforestation that resulted from the actual historic practices of successive Mesopotamian kingdoms figured prominently in the decline of Sumerian civilization as analyzed recently by Jared Diamond's great 2004 book, Collapse. The Euphrates, Tigris, and Karun rivers, the heart of the Fertile Crescent, began to fill with salt and silt, clogging up irrigation canals. Deforestation also exposed the salt-rich sedimentary rocks of the northern mountains to erosion such that after 1,500 years of farming, a serious salinity problem developed. Declining food production resulted, signaling the beginning of the end for Sumerian civilization. This process impacted not only Mesopotamia, but also Palestine. 
In the 8th century before the Common Era, Israel's prophets understood that millennia prior, their Palestinian homeland was much greener than what they knew. And they often dreamt of the restoration to the great forests that once flourished there. This they specifically linked to a process of rehydration of the land. The most well-known articulation of this vision is found in Isaiah 35. The poem begins with the promise that arid lands will once again host the glory of Lebanon. The wilderness and dry land shall be glad, says the prophet. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. They shall see the majesty of the Creator. The phrase glory of Lebanon refers to the great cedar forests, which they perceive to directly reflect the splendor of God. Isaiah extends this notion of cosmic healing to creation in the following verses 5 and 6. For waters shall burst forth in the desert, streams in the wilderness. Torrid earth shall become a pool, parched land, fountains of water, the home of jackals, a pasture, the abode of ostriches, reeds and rushes. This echoes Isaiah 13 with which we began. Jackals and ostriches are again pictured re-inhabiting the land, undomesticated animals. But now their world is greening because water is flowing everywhere. Here is an eschatological reversal of desertification. Second Isaiah adds that this same phenomenon should be understood to represent the Creator's response to the thirst of the poor and needy, which is to say, all those marginalized by empire, human and otherwise. When the poor and needy seek water, says Isaiah 41, verses 17 and following, I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, acacia, myrtle, and olive. I will set in the desert again the cypress and the pine so that all may see and know that the hand of Adonai has done this. Just as Pharaoh's army got drowned in the old Exodus story of Exodus 14 in which the Hebrew slaves escape Egypt, in Isaiah's prophetic visions the travails of empire similarly disappear under water. These are extraordinary visions of redemption as social and ecological rehydration. A biblical investigation of hydrology as theology leads us naturally to analogous eschatological visions in the Second Testament, specifically to John of Patmos, famous River of Life vision in Revelation 22. I want to focus on this text, notably written by a political prisoner, looking carefully at several characteristics of this image to see what we can learn, both theologically and ecologically. First, we're told in Revelation 22.1 that John's river shines like crystal, 
This is not magic. It is an observation. Pure water indeed appears crystalline when it is flowing freely. Who of us has not been mesmerized by watching the dancing silver strands of a mountain stream? Indeed, John's phrase, the river of the water of life, connotes exactly that, the running, bubbling, lively water of a spring or brook. Keep in mind that Palestine was, and is, characterized by few perennial streams, inconsistent springs, and just a handful of actual rivers, most of which were far from populated areas such as Jerusalem. For those living in this arid climate, the stagnant, torpid waters found in pools, wells, catchment tanks, ritual baths, or clay pots would have been far more familiar. Domestic water quality was often poor. Indeed, Roman occupation with the famous engineering of Roman aqueducts, siphoned off even more water to the elite. The result was that the experience of living water, as the Greek phrase hudor zoon famously translates in John's Gospel, living water was rare indeed, and thus a true sign of restoration for this desert people. Living water in scripture is opposed to stagnant or dead water, as an Arabic phrase puts it. John's life-giving river is elsewhere in the book of Revelation depicted as a spring. The lamb will shepherd the martyrs and lead them to springs of living water, says Revelation 7.16. John the Revelator also stresses that it is God who gives to the thirsty a gift from the spring of living water. Revelation 21.6, reiterated again in our chapter 22. These verses are a midrashic appropriation of another famous and subversive promise of Second Isaiah. Ho, all who are thirsty, come for water, even you who have no money. A third observation from Revelation 22 is that John's river is running through the middle of the great city. The Greek term for street, platea, from platos, or broad, connotes the main thoroughfare, or plaza, of a Hellenistic metropolis. Poignantly, earlier in the Apocalypse narrative, This platea was the space of political violence where the bodies of two prophets murdered by the imperial beast lay in public view for three and a half days as a spectacle of terror. Like Michael Brown in St. Louis or George Floyd in Minneapolis, I can't breathe. But at the end of John's vision, this street has become pure gold, transparent as glass, a metaphor for water. It is as if the new Jerusalem's watery main street has dissolved into the river of the water of life, which washes away the blood of empire. Fourth, the living waters of John the Revelator's vision in 22 are not springing up from the ground, but proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Throughout Revelation, it has been symbols of judgment that flow from the throne, but here it is healing waters. This notion of God as a cosmic fountain is found in several places in the Hebrew Bible. 
For with you is the spring of life, sings the psalmist, Psalm 36, 9. The prophet Jeremiah laments, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. Note the irony. Judeans are abandoning fresh streams for the stagnant waters of leaky catchments. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, the words for spring are also linked to fertility. Finally, John the Revelator envisions a renewed earth that is literally saturated. When God transfigures the world, the waters will flow freely and abundantly again. The river flowing from the throne in Revelation 22 rehabilitates a recurring image in the prophets. Joel prophesied that one day all the watercourses of Judah would flow with water and a spring would issue from the house of the Lord. Zechariah echoed this tradition, In that day fresh water shall flow from Jerusalem to the eastern sea and the western sea throughout summer and winter. Zechariah 14.8 But the most elaborate articulation of this idea in the Hebrew Bible is found in Ezekiel's famous vision of redemption as rehydration. Ezekiel 47 It occurs toward the end of the prophet's concluding description of renewed Israel and its temple city in Ezekiel 40-48. The first part of chapter 47 narrates in refrain a rising tide of water flowing out from the temple. First it comes up to the prophet's ankle, then to his waist, then to his neck, and then he's swimming. Implied here is the eschatological restoration of the Gihon Spring, which inconsistently supplied water to Jerusalem. Gihon is named as one of the four rivers of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2. And scholar Theodore Hebert, in his great book, The Yahwist's Landscape, Nature and Religion in Early Israel, notes that biblical literature often seemed to identify Eden with the Jordan Valley in primeval times, that is, before its desertification by empire. This is precisely what is narrated in the second half of Ezekiel 47's oracle. Palestine is greened by the rising waters all the way to the Dead Sea. Unlike the flood of Genesis 7, Ezekiel's surging river is clearly life-giving, indicated by the explosion of fecundity that occurs within and beside it. Interestingly, this rehydration of the valley also includes an ecological reserve of brackish swamps, Ezekiel 47.11. Ezekiel's vision culminates with, quote, all kinds of trees that bear year-round, both for consumption and for medicine. Here is a nod to the Garden of Eden story. Since aside from olive groves, orcharding was not particularly characteristic of agrarian ancient Israel. In an even clearer allusion to the Garden of Eden story, John the Revelator's tree of life grows by the river of life, yielding spectacular fruits each month. Revelation 22:2. Its twelve crops are a numeric figure representing the restored nation of Israel, hearkening back to the primal days of the tribal confederacy. 
a theme also explicitly addressed in Ezekiel's vision. But this is an inclusive political idea. As in Ezekiel, the leaves of John's tree are for medicine, but now specifically for the healing of the nations, including the kings of the earth, that is, the very principalities and powers whose exploitation degraded creation in the first place. It is a magnificent vision. John the seer has cosmically transplanted the tree of life from the primeval garden of Eden into the heart of the eschatological city of the New Jerusalem. But the former has transfigured the latter. The New Jerusalem is unrecognizable as an urban space, at least as defined by our civilization, which builds cities over and against nature. And all this is possible because the world has been rehydrated. These prophetic biblical visions represent profound articulations of social and environmental restorative justice for an ancient desert people for whom dehydration was a daily reality. But they speak equally sharply to our time, hostage as we are to the relentless commodification and privatization of the water of life, to the ecological specters of peak water and the dark prospects of unending water resource wars. Our lands are parched, not by nature, but by imperial hubris. In such a world, biblical visions of redemption as rehydration, of the quenching of every thirst, especially those marginalized, continue to be compelling. Our task is to persuade our faith communities to reclaim them for our political imagination, our theology, and our practices of justice. One more biblical trope is appropriate to close these reflections. Rivers are the most dramatic natural demonstration of the fact that water flows downward, seeking level. This was seen by the prophets as a poignant metaphor of divine concern for the lowest. Thus, Amos 5.24 famously appeals for justice to flow down like a perennial stream. Water, indeed, is a biblical metaphor for the work of justice. It can be patient and accommodating, flowing around obstacles, yet also has the power to wear down or suddenly burst apart the greatest physical structures. Water wears hard things smooth over time, from the smallest rocks to the highest mountains. Creation's most fundamental building block thus teaches us much about the Creator, about ourselves, and about our historical crises. Perhaps this is why the biblical story begins and ends in a water world, Genesis 1 Revelation 22. Water matters, and so do rivers. By the riverside, 
where the trees bring right Break your vows to the power and fold you By the riverside where the leaves grow bright Break your vows to pass the holes you You can find out more about our Watershed Discipleship work through the book, Watershed Discipleship Re-Inhabiting Bioregional Faith and Practice, a 2016 uh, anthology, uh, and also through www.watersheddiscipleship.org, where you'll find further resources. Uh, Very grateful to Nomad Podcast. Glad to be with you. Be well. Step on board if you, want to you have been listening to the Bartcast. 
produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. For more programs and other resources, go to chedmyers.org. Join our community-supported ministry at bcm-net.org backslash donate. Thanks for listening. Thank you.